All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 423, this week in space history for April 13th to the 19th. I'm John Mulnix. Part 2 of the 50th anniversary celebration of Apollo 13 is coming up later this week. On April 13th, 1960, a transit navigation satellite launched. For more on this program, we're going to talk with Richard Easton. So today we've got Richard Easton back on the show. You're a multi-time returning guest, so I appreciate you coming back on. Um, We're going to be talking about the transit system and GPS and some of the misconceptions around those two very different systems. Uh, Richard, welcome back on the show and thanks for coming back on. Great to be back on. So there, there is an article you have online, and you've written about this book as um, in, in your book, uh, GPS Declassified as well. Um, you know, let's, let's start just kind of with like a 50,000-foot overview. What, what are the differences between the systems? Well, um, just a little bit of history first. Sure. Uh, Sputnik 1 is launched on Friday, October 4th, 1957. On Monday the 7th, uh, Bill Geyer and George Weifenbach from the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins were listening to the signal. And they quickly realized that they could predict Sputnik's orbit by looking at the Doppler of its signal. So, of course, Doppler, you know, a train whistle varies the frequency varies on whether the train is heading towards or away from you. Yeah. And um, by measuring that shift, they could estimate Sputnik's orbit, which obviously was very important. Uh, The following March, actually the day my father's first satellite, Vanguard 1, was launched, so St. Patrick's Day, Mm -hmm. March 17th, 1958, their boss, Frank McClure, said, gee, can't you invert the solution here? So couldn't we launch satellites, uh, what became transit satellites, and use the Doppler measurements of the signals from those satellites to give positions of receivers? So they quickly realized that would work many years mathematics, but they they managed to solve it. And the first NAVSAT system, Transit, uh, became operational, I think it was 67, sometime in the mid to late 60s. Now, Transit uh, was a two-dimensional system, so it was not, you know, I think they had seven satellites in sight. Mm -hmm. You couldn't really use it for airplanes, but it was ideal for Polaris submarines. Uh, to update the inertial navigation systems they had and pinpoint their position in in case the, um, you know, the much feared day came when the U.S. and the Soviet Union ICBMs were were being fired at each other. 
So, and, and soon yachtsmen started using it. It became adopted by, um, by um, civilian ships and, and also military ships. So it was a two-dimensional system, periodically available, maybe about once an hour. Uh, the general accuracy, about a quarter mile, though I remember talking with my father about it. He thought the quarter mile was somewhat generous, <laughs> but, but still it was a huge advance, uh, the first knapsack. Um, it's oftentimes, as you said in your introduction, confused with GPS. Uh, thus, a best-selling author, Annie Jacobson, said that DARPA, the, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or originally it was just ARPA, um, invented GPS. Well, one of the first things ARPA funded was transit. So it's correct that they played a major role in the first NAVSAT system. But GPS uses a different technique. GPS, it's the time difference. Mm -hmm. So you have very accurate clocks, synchronized clocks in the satellites. You know accurately the satellite's position. And by measuring the time the signal takes to go from the satellite to the receiver, you know how far you are from that satellite. So light travels 186,000 miles per second. So if it takes a tenth of a second, you're 18,100 miles from that satellite. You're somewhere on the surface of the sphere, 18,600 miles from it. So with four GPS satellites in sight, you can get your three-dimensional position and the clock synchronization in the receiver. So, so uh, you know, there are different ways. My father's name for it was passive ranging. Uh, he had a conversation with Dr. Arnold Shostak in 1964 about the hydrogen maser, which is a very accurate atomic clock developed in 1960. And they agreed that, that the hydrogen maser made passive ranging. So, again, the time differencing it would be accurate enough when we could ultimately put hardened clocks in the satellites to use this time differencing method. And again, totally different method from transit. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously transit was important. It helped inspire other people that, gee, other methods like passive ranging would work. Um, but but they are different systems. In fact, uh, the first funding my father got for his timation for time navigation system mm -hmm. was in October 1964 from John Yobe at Naval Air Systems Command. And Yobe gave him a grant for $35,000, which even in 1964 was not a lot of money. But my father said it made it an officially sponsored program, which was important. And then he could mix it with other money. Mm -hmm. And Yob feared if he asked for more money, <laughs> it had to go up the chain of command at NAVAIR. And NAVAIR was also funding transit. So he was worried that his own entity's politics, that transit advocates would say, 
gee, we don't want to fund this system, which might ultimately take the place of transit, which is what happened. So again, from the very beginning, you had politics uh, determining how, how things proceeded, but they were rival systems. Uh, transit was decommissioned in 1996 when, uh, you know, GPS, uh, the, the original specs from the late seven, six, I'm sorry, late sixties, the joint chiefs of staff put out specs for a replacement of transit. It had to be a three dimensional position, uh, re- system, all weather, always available worldwide, accurate within 50 feet. So three-dimensional, you know, GPS mm-hmm. has been used by airplanes from the beginning when you had, you know, four satellites in sight. And, and again, the specs were that they didn't have the term GPS in the late 60s, but you can see them building off transit. It had to be improvements, had to be three-dimensional, always available as opposed to once an hour, instantaneous and much more accurate. And that's why uh, GPS ultimately superseded transit. When when we when we spoke last, I remember you were talking about um, how the funding for um, Timation was basically at that limit. And it's just kind of interesting how little things like that in the grand scheme of, you know, technological history, something like GPS hinged on a decision you know, with how procurement and how government programs are funded like that hinged on a decision to keep it in an office and basically made your dad bootstrap it essentially and, you know, do it on a tighter budget and that kind of thing that, you know, that's the little insights. Uh, That was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is those little insights there just add so much more to the history of these programs. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, They could, they could easily have been strangled at birth. Now, Ultimately, the logic was so strong that GPS would have developed, whether it would have been two years later or five years later. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the government in its infinite wisdom decided in the 1970s that all government satellites would be launched on the space shuttle, which um, the GPS test block one satellites were not. But the Block Two operational ones were supposed to be launched, but of course, then you have the terrible yeah. Challenger disaster in January of '86, uh, and the Air Force quickly uh, uh, developed a, a uh, an unmanned rocket to to launch the uh, Block Two satellites. So again, that decision may have slowed implementation by GPS by two years. So again, you know, gee, we, we got the shuttle. It's going to be real cheap. It's going to be reusable. Will it be able to launch, you know, every couple of weeks? And, and as a result, we got to find a use for it. Okay. If you're a government satellite, you've got to be launched on the shuttle, even though GPS satellites are at 12,000 miles, yeah. the shuttle goes up two to 300 miles. It was, a ludicrous decision, but it was a decision Congress made. So, you know, the ludicrous is redundant <laughs> there. Sadly, and, you know, and that's one of the other things too, with the shuttle never launching from Vandenberg, that, that, that was another uh, re- repercussion of the Challenger disaster was there was never a shuttle launch from Vandenberg either. 
Um, well, and of course, one question is why are GPS satellites inclined at 55 degrees? My father actually thought a slightly higher inclination would be better. But pre-SpaceX, um, the furthest north inclination you could safely get from the Cape was 55 degrees. You know, so a lot of these things, they're, they're determined by other aspects of launching them. They're, they're not necessarily what's best on the system. Obviously, from the Cape, you're not going to launch it due north because that'll go through Florida. You know, you've got to launch it to the east or the northeast to avoid hitting land. Kind of dog leg it after that, yeah. But no, that's interesting. I actually didn't know that that's one of the, the reasons that the inclination is uh, the way it is for those satellites. Well, again, it's the basic point of skepticism. You know, just because somebody writes very well and is a bestseller uh, doesn't necessarily mean they've done the correct research. Mm-hmm. And uh, Simon Winchester wrote an excellent book on precision engineering and he's got a good part of one chapter on gps and he gets the the big picture correct but he gets a lot of small details wrong about my father um i talked about the thirty-five thousand dollars from john yobe well the previous month so that was an a car experiment in october actually October 16th, 1964, uh, down the unfinished I-295, which goes just past Naval Research Labs headquarters in Washington. In fact, I remember seeing it being, I remember looking out in 1963 and seeing 295 being constructed. Well, the previous month, the idea of, of, uh, using not only the clocks for navigation, but to synchronize different stations in my father's Naval Space Surveillance System. That came to him when he was in Texas. Um, they wanted to buy, they wanted to buy a piece of property from the King Ranch and put one of the space station stations there, space surveillance stations there. King Ranch did not want to sell a piece of property because if they'd sold it, their whole King Ranch would have been revalued and the property taxes would have skyrocketed. Mm. So they only wanted to rent it to the government. But the government doesn't like to rent (laughs) property. They want to own it. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, that idea came when my father was in Texas. The following month, the experiment was in Washington, D.C., Matt Maloof uh, had a convertible and he had a transmitter that they were receiving at one of the buildings at the Naval Research Lab. And Matt was very surprised that they could tell when he was changing lanes. Wow. But anyway, Simon Winchester read those two stories and he thought I-295 was in Texas and that my father had lived in the Rio Grande area in Texas. (laughs) I grew up in Oxon Hill, Maryland. We never lived in Texas. So, you know, little things like that. Yeah. If if you're a son of, you can say, <laughs> all right, it's not that important. But we, we all know errors tend to propagate yeah. and magnify over time. Yep. So. 
Uh, and I, I caught something similar like that in a, uh, I think it was a business insider insider article um, a couple weeks ago. They were talking about uh, Boca Chica, Florida. I'm like, no, I'm pretty sure that's Boca Chica, Texas, but <laughs> send, you know, send in a little uh, clarification here. But, you know, it's, it's little things like that, that, you know, nobody's perfect, but I, I agree. You know, it's one of the things with the podcast. I try to, you know, double check as much as I can as a one man operation here, but you know, that's, that's where misnomers start. And, you know, if we can curtail those, uh, rumors and misnomers, it's always nice to nip it in the bud. <laughs> yes. Or at least, uh, say I protest. Exactly. Uh, Stand athwart, uh, history yelling, yes, stop, you know, Buckley, stop. <laughs> oh, hasn't, hasn't worked, but it makes me feel better. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Well, Richard, I, I really appreciate you coming back on the podcast and I look forward to next time. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Richard for coming on the podcast. You can pick up his book, GPS Declassified, which I highly recommend on Amazon. It's some great reading during some downtime we've got in quarantine. Next up, on April 14th, 1981, the Space Shuttle Columbia landed at Edwards Air Force Base. Depending on the source, a crowd between 200,000 and 320,000 people witnessed Columbia's touchdown at Edwards Air Force Base. Rogers Dry Lake Bed at the base is a wonderfully unique facility that has been used for various aerospace applications since the 1930s. It's noted that these, quote, natural flat surfaces have literally saved hundreds of aircrew lives and aircraft valued at millions of dollars because the lake beds offer a broad expanse of hardened clay on which to land in emergency situations. Edwards Air Force Base is located 100 miles northeast of Los Angeles in the Mojave Desert. This massive stretch of land covers 44 square miles and has runways that stretch up to 7.5 miles long on the lake bed. In addition to the dry lake bed runways, there's also a 15,000-foot concrete runway that has an extra 9,000 feet of lake bed overrun. A few years ago, I was looking through the list of longest runways, and surprisingly, the runway at Edwards Air Force Base isn't the longest paved runway. That honor belongs to a Chinese airport. The longest paved runway in the United States is at Denver International Airport, clocking in at 16,000 feet, or more than three miles long. The lake bed strips at Rogers Dry Lake are complemented by another 22 miles of smooth clay surface at the Rosamond Dry Lake. When John Young and Robert Crippen touched down at Edwards Air Force Base, they brought a successful conclusion to the first mission of the shuttle program. By my count, there were 54 landings at Edwards Air Force Base between STS-1 on April 14, 1981, and STS-128 on September 11, 2009. Next up, we have some more Apollo history. Apollo 16 launched on April 16, 1972. This was the fifth time that humans landed on the moon, and it was the penultimate Apollo lunar flight. Commander John Young, Lunar Module Pilot Charlie Duke, and Command Module Pilot Ken Mattingly were on the crew for this mission. 
Young and Duke spent three days on the lunar surface, gathering samples for return to Earth, deploying scientific experiments, and driving around the surface of the moon on the lunar roving vehicle. John Young's Grand Prix on the moon is something to see, so I'll be linking to the video of that race, as it were, in the show notes. Also of note, Command Module Pilot Ken Mattingly was one of the original Prime crew members on Apollo 13, but he was bumped at the last minute with Jack Swigert. On April 17, 1970, Apollo 13's Command Module Odyssey and her astronauts splashed down. More on this splashdown in the next episode of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. SpaceX launched the CRS-3 mission on April 18, 2014. Check out the show notes for a video of this launch. There's a few missions on April 19th. The first is the launch of the Salyut-1 space station, which was the first space station that was launched by the Soviet Union in 1971. More about this mission will be in next week's episode. On April 19, 2001, the Space Shuttle Endeavour launched on the STS-100 mission. An interesting note for this flight, Chris Hadfield, a Canadian astronaut, became the first Canadian to perform an EVA during this mission. Endeavour docked with the International Space Station during this flight and transferred cargo and crew NASA notes that, quote, 6,000 pounds of cargo inside the multi-purpose logistics module Raffaello was transferred to the station, including two new scientific experiment racks for Destiny and the first three U.S. commercial payloads. In turn, 1,600 pounds of material were stored inside Raffaello for return to Earth. There were two EVAs for this mission. The first one, with Scott Przensky and Chris Hadfield, lasted 7 hours and 10 minutes. The next, EVA number 2, lasted 7 hours and 40 minutes. These EVAs installed new pallets on the station and helped upgrade existing systems. I'll be linking to the National Space Society's YouTube page for the post-flight presentation of STS-100, these videos are great, they feature commentary with the crew, and cool pictures and videos of the mission. And that is it for this week. Later this week we'll have part 2 of the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13, and next week we touch down on the moon with the crew of Apollo 16. I do have a call-in number if you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment. Just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.